Just enough water, just enough wine, just enough crumbs, a dollar and a dime, just enough hope to keep us towing the line. But sooner or later, That sooner or later, Liza Gilkinson. Uh, we use it as the introduction to our show, Activist Radio, where we offer some history you didn't learn in high school. We have some news stories you haven't seen on your TV, and we have music to help you join the resistance. Activist Radio can be heard Thursdays, 8 to 9 a.m. on KBOO there at 90.7 FM in Portland, Oregon. Thursdays, 11 to 12 noon on WRFA, and that's the 107.9 FM in Jamestown, New York. Thursdays, 5 to 6 p.m. on WBKR 91.3 FM at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Thursdays, 7 to 8 p.m. on WBDY, and they're at 99.5 FM at the Bundy in Binghamton, New York. Sundays, 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. on WESU, and they're at 88.1 FM at Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut. Sundays, 4 to 5 p.m. from WIOF, and they're at 104.1 FM in Woodstock, New York. Sundays 5 to 6 p.m. from the Progressive Radio Network. Find them at prn.live. And finally, Mondays 11 to 12 noon on WCAA, and they're at 107.3 FM in Albany, New York. Past programs are available as a podcast or on Activist Radio. Or you can go to classwars.org anytime and listen to our last 10 programs. Our guest today is Michael Zweig. He's author of the newly published book, Class, Race, and gender, challenging the injuries and divisions of capitalism. And we talk about the, well, the uprisings against the wealthy elites who run our state. We also have very good news. Uh, Shahad, our guest last week, we were in doubt about whether she had survived in Gaza. She is, uh, is still in Gaza and still reporting, so I have included on our website you can read uh, Shahad's latest uh, reporting on uh, the slaughter in Gaza of the Palestinian people. Which brings me the views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, its board of directors, not even its constituents. It's just the views of me today. Fred, and I'm bringing you up to date on America's hidden class wars. be louder than your screams One day our whispers will be louder than your screams One day our whispers will be louder than your screams The people's day will come Emma Goldman will sing this song for you Big Bill Haywood and Mother Jones too Psycho and Benzetti that took their lives But we can organize One day our whispers will be loud 
All right, that great song is The People's Day by Otis Gibbs. We use it as the introduction to the first part of Activist Radio. We call it history you didn't learn in high school because it's the history of social struggle. Left out of colleges, left out of high schools, certainly left out of your commercial media. Um, the people in charge, the corporations, don't want us to think that social struggle can even uh, change the direction of a country, that it can never stop, for example, the slaughter in Gaza. If enough people got together and uh, hit the streets in enough towns, maybe we could get a ceasefire. Uh, that's what's hidden to us, uh, discouraging us from taking political activism and uh, taking our grievances in, into the streets, which uh, in this current uh, environment for the last several weeks we definitely are doing here in the Hudson Valley. There's a demonstration just every other day uh, trying to get a ceasefire. Well, today in history is February 8th. We go back to 1968. Three black students were killed and 30 wounded in a confrontation with highway patrolmen at a South Carolina state rally supporting arrested civil rights protesters. The incident was named the Orangeburg Massacre. Well, the assault began with approximately 200 students when they gathered on February 6 to protest the segregation of black patrons at a nearby all-star bowling lane. This demonstration was peaceful and no students were arrested. The following night, however, 15 protesters were arrested and a large group of students gathered on the campus of South Carolina State to support those held in custody. Students built a large bonfire which the police, when they arrived, tried to put out. In the confrontation, one officer claimed he was hit by a piece of wood. He then raised his pistol and shot into the air. Hearing the shot, an, a number of other highway patrolmen shot into the crowd of black students, killing Samuel Hama, Hammond, Henry Smith, and Delano Middleton, and injuring 50 others. The patrolmen had used buckshot against the students, and many were shot in the back and even the bottoms of their feet as they ran away. None of the students were armed. Nine officers were arrested for using excessive force during the massacre, but they were soon acquitted of all charges and let go. The only person charged and sent to prison was a student named Cleveland Sellers, a representative of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, who was convicted of inciting the riot. Sellers was later pardoned and released from prison. The state had a lot invested in trying to prove that the patrolmen had acted in self-defense. South Carolina's young governor, Robert McNair, portrayed the confrontation as a two-way gun battle, with the lives of the patrolmen at risk. A media campaign was initiated to blame the incident solely on sellers and protect the state's reputation for progressive race relations. Ramsey Clark, U.S. Attorney General in 1968, said it well. Quote, they committed murder. They just started shooting. It was a slaughter. Double aught buckshot is what you use for deer. It's meant to kill. 
There are many in South Carolina who still believe their former governor and state patrolman. None of the killers were ever convicted. They all kept their jobs, even after the massacre. It's no wonder that Southern politicians want to limit what is taught in schools or offered in libraries. Acknowledging past racism is the only way to come to terms with centuries of slavery and Jim Crow. Governors like Ron DeSantis run for office on perpetuating segregation and racial inequality. Preserving white privilege has always been the key to success for Trump and any number of similar bigots seeking higher office. Jim Crow segregation is the same as apartheid. It's sometimes violent effort to eliminate the rights of certain members of society based on their race or ethnic heritage. First power-hungry leaders stir up historic hatreds. Then they encourage violence against the most vulnerable minorities. Kristallnacht, the Nazis' attack on Jewish stores in 1938, is another example of Jim Crow. The Holocaust is another. The extermination of Jews, gypsies, and gays during the Second World War. Genocide is merely the last step in exterminating the other. And that last step is now being done in Gaza. This time the U.S. is the country supplying the bombs and the money. Yes, we are witnessing the American Holocaust, one that will stain our country's honor for the rest of the 21st century and beyond. We're going to go to a song. This is a new song by Jim Page. Uh, the album is Collateral Damage, and the song is Palestine. Make it clear as I can About the faraway troubles in the Holy Land Pictures of the children That's in your mind Laying down their bodies on the firing line And now the people who live there They live under the gun where it was homeland for a thousand years before the soldiers come Surrounded by the armies Airplanes in the sky Everybody knows someone who had to die Oh Palestine, there's a hole in your soul Oh Palestine, or will it ever be whole? Talk about the settlers that come from so far away And talk about the money from the USA And talk about the bullets that made of plastic and steel The pictures of a Palestine underneath the Iron Hill
Now what do you do when they come to your home and they tell you your land is no longer your own? Do you let them take it? Do you dare to resist? Pictures of a Palestine underneath the iron fist. Oh, Palestine, there's a hole in your soul. Oh, Palestine, will it ever be whole? Now we say we want peace But we pay for subjugation We say we want a settlement in terms of occupation We call for human rights But we never say what kind You can see what has come to in the faces of Palestine Well, does it ever make you think about the friends we endorse? The armies of a general riding on an iron horse. And does it ever make you wonder why it always seems to be such an undemocratic version of democracy? Oh, Palestine, there's a hole in your soul. Oh, Palestine, will it ever be whole? Oh, Palestine, there's a hole in your soul. Oh, Palestine, let your story be told. They lied, they lied, they took us for a ride Tried burying the truth where it very nearly died They lied, they lied, but no matter what they tried hide Sing and shout, the truth wins out, everybody knows they lied I ain't telling you nothing you don't already know but the That's a lie lie They Lied by J. Mankita it's the lead into the next part of Activist Radio. It's got its own website, fantasylandmedia.org. We put it up to make all these stories keyword searchable going back the last uh, dozen years or so. We think it's an in-depth look at how the corporate media fails us. Because when it makes the news, when it fashions the news, it's always written by the people in charge, the corporations, uh, the very wealthy and your very own government. Our first story today is from Mondo Weiss. It's a newsletter dedicated to Israel and Palestine. 
Quote, the British Guardian has just published an extraordinary and thorough confirmation of what we already suspected, that CNN's bias about reporting Israel's war in Gaza is no accident, but a conscious and a complex policy directed from the very top of the network. CNN is facing a backlash from its own staff or over editorial policies they say have led to a regurgitation of Israeli propaganda and the censoring of Palestinian perspectives in the network's coverage of the war in Gaza. You get the impression that CNN spends as much time distorting the news as it does actually gathering it. And here's a quick summary. Daily news decisions are set by a flow of directors from the CNN headquarters in Atlanta that has set strict guidelines on coverage. They include tight restrictions on quoting Hamas and reporting other Palestinian perspectives while Israeli government statements are taken at face value. In addition, every story on the conflict must be cleared by the Jerusalem Bureau before broadcast or publication. Well, can you really still believe our media does a very good job in reporting news from Palestine? This Guardian story wasn't covered in the New York Times. Isn't that amazing? I, sometimes the omission is surprising to me. Uh, I would have thought that the New York Times would report this. I think the Times will get around to reporting this at some point. Well, had uh, New York Times had plenty of company, most other major news sources in the U.S. did not uh, cover this story e either. And I think the result is uh, that we look at the U.S. media and concede that the Zionists simply own much of it. Our second story is from Common Dreams. The nation's leading newspapers were under fire this weekend after publishing opinion pieces seen as bigoted, Islamophobic, racist, and reckless. A Wall Street Journal opinion piece published on Friday afternoon read, Welcome to Dearborn, America's Jihad Capital. And on Saturday, the New York Times published a piece by longtime columnist Thomas Friedman entitled, Understanding the Middle East Through the animal kingdom. The Islamophobic article, article was written by Stephen Stalinsky, who is a commentator on, on terrorism and has served as director of the pro-Israel Middle East Media Research Institute based in Washington, D.C. The Friedman's piece in the New York Times entitled Understanding the Middle East Through the Animal Kingdom posited Iran as a metaphorical parasitoid wasp with proxies in Yemen, Lebanon, Iraq, and Syria as caterpillars. Quote, we have no counter strategy that safely and efficiently kills the wasp without setting fire to the whole jungle. Suggesting the U.S. military destroys the entire Middle East to annihilate Iran and its allies. He concludes that he could quote, contemplate the Middle East by watching Animal Planet. Well, our major news media is really not, to, not afraid to print bigoted, hateful opinions. And maybe it's because these same ideas are held by our ruling class of warmongers and racists. The last story is a quick one. Truth out. 
calling on the United States to end its complicity in the nightmare unfolding in Gaza. U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders on Friday said he would introduce an amendment to remove more than $10 million from the foreign aid supplemental request by President Joe Biden. $10.1 billion has been proposed to pay for offensive weaponry funding for the Israeli government, which has killed at least 27,000 Palestinians in Gaza so far, including at least 11,000 children and displaced 1.9 million. 27,000 dead, two-thirds of them women and children, said the Vermont Independent. 67,000 wounded, 70% of housing units damaged or destroyed, and now hundreds of thousands of children facing starvation. But our supposed newspaper of record didn't cover this story either. Our New York Times was busy promoting racists and warmongers like the idiot Thomas Friedman. We're going to go to a song now. This is Jim Page. Um, and the song is I'd Rather Be Dancing. And the song actually is a tribute to Rachel Corey. She was killed by an Israeli bulldozer on March 16, 2003, uh, killed in Gaza. Uh, so the, this song goes out in memory of Rachel Corey. Let's go to that. I was always the one I could never stand idly by And watched while the bullies beat up on the weaker ones I had to do something to try And I never gave up on people That we could be better somehow Morality's compass, you gave it to me And I still follow it now Well, I couldn't stop thinking about it I couldn't get it out of my mind The pictures, the stories, the plight of the people in the occupied Palestine And how my government makes me complicit With the political aid that they send So I packed up my bags and I headed to Rafa To work with the ISN And I'd rather be dancing Dancing and falling in love But if I can just watch from a distance And what am I made of? Mama, these people are so good to me They treat me like I want of their own They feed me and see to my needs And let me sleep in their homes And Papa, their lives are so hard The gunshots every night Strip searches, roadblocks, humiliations Papa, it just isn't right Well, I can feel my privilege around me This air in my American face I could wave my passport around like a flag And I would be safe in this place For these child soldiers of Israel They look like the boys back home and if it wasn't for American money, it'd have to leave these people alone. And I'd rather be dancing, dancing to Pat Benatar. Oh, but somebody has to do something about it, and here we are. 
like tanks with bulldozer blades. The name on the side says Caterpillar, and that means they're American-made. Well, I am American too, and I'll be where everybody can see. So if they wanna run over those houses today, they're gonna have to run over me. Well, it's dangerous taking a stand, but it's dangerous running away. Sometimes you have to face up to the danger. There is just no other way. But there are such beautiful dreams I have seen in the eyes of a child. If I can just make one little difference, then I think my life is worthwhile. And I'd rather be dancing, but instead I'm saying goodbye. But we'll meet again when it's over. I'd rather be dancing. Surely we'd all rather be. And someday we'll dance in a world that's peaceful and. be dancing a tribute to Rachel Corey killed by an Israeli bulldozer uh, back in 2003 just an incredible song and an incredible story of a young woman who goes out to try to stop the bulldozing of homes in Gaza and uh, purposely run over by an Israeli bulldozer um, I think it really uh, fits with what we're looking at uh, the uprising of the American people against the amorality of their leaders. It's amorality that would kill a person like Rachel Corey. It's amorality that a country could kill uh, the tens of thousands of Palestinian children. We're going to go to our guest now, Michael Swig, author of the newly published book, Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. And we talk about the uprisings against the wealthy elites who run our racist state. All right, Michael Swig, thank you so much for being on Activist Radio today. Thanks for having me. You got uh, a really interesting uh, book out, uh, Class, Race, and Gender. Um, and you really go places where um, I didn't expect you to go. Uh, I think it's such an interesting uh, read. Um, we're, we don't talk about class in this country very much. Uh, as a matter of fact, when you do, people sort of look at you like you're a socialist or something. Are we supposed to be above class in the U.S. or we've overcome class? Why is this not a popular thing to talk about? I think what people mean often by class when it does come up is something to do with income. You know, the middle class people, and then there's a fringe of rich and poor. Mm. And uh, I think that that is not a very helpful way to talk about it. We do talk about it that way. And it does describe some reality that there are rich and poor and that there are people in the middle. 
But I don't think that that's very helpful. For me, understanding class as a question of power is the way to go, is the way to get at its significance. Now, when you start talking about class as power, people who have a lot of power don't like that because they don't want to be called out. So they would rather talk about, you know, everybody's in the middle class except, yeah, there's some rich people and there's some poor people. But I think that uh, let's call it out. We're talking about people uh, who are, are working class people. That's the majority of the population. It's about 62% of the labor force who basically don't have a lot of control over the t- t- pace or the content of their work. There are people who are industrial workers, uh, miners and construction workers, as we normally think of. Uh, but there's also call center workers and truck drivers and home health aides and EMTs, all kinds of people who are in the service areas, but who are also working class people. And if you think of class in terms of power, then you're thinking automatically of a relationship because somebody has power if somebody else doesn't, or somebody doesn't have power if somebody else does. And so the question of class as power brings into focus the relationship between the working class as the great majority of the population and the capitalist class, which is the other side of that power dynamic, and that's in my measures about two percent, and then you have a middle class of professional uh, people and small business owners and managers and supervisors, and that's a little more than a third of the labor force. I see. Hmm. I was also really interested in your analysis of China, uh, and I've been asking you know, political people for quite a while about, about China. Has it, uh, is it still socialist at all? You write about the conflict between the individual and the needs of the group. Um, is there still, well, hope for China being, you know, somewhat egalitarian society where all people's needs uh, are at least somewhat important? Well, I think that China is uh, now pretty consolidated as a capitalist country. It's a capitalist country that does not have a democratic political system, but it is a capitalist country in the sense that there is a broad working class and that there are uh, people who control the production process, a very small number of people relatively, and uh, they produce for markets and they produce for profit. And it is essentially a capitalist economy now. It wasn't in the time of the uh, communist revolution from 1949 until maybe 1980 or 81. Uh, But uh, I think China and India and the United States and Japan and, and, you know, capitalism is throughout the world. It is an era of capitalism triumphant. And so I think it's important to understand capitalism, not only for our country, but in mm. the world at large. Sure. Yeah, I've often been struck with how many billionaires China has. I mean, I would have guessed maybe 40 or 50, but it's hundreds, right? I mean, China it has a real wealthy class, a, a real uh, class that really dictates to the others. Um so I think maybe people on the left have been talking about China for a while. Nobody really knows exactly where to put them, you know, but uh, that's a good insight, I think, that uh, it's really a capitalist country. 
I think it is, yeah. And that has its consequences for the Chinese people as well as for the rest of the world. You also talk about in the book about uh, mass uprisings uh, bringing real change in society. Uh, and I, met, I wonder, does that mean that uh, elections without uprisings don't really produce a lot of change? I think that elections are important, and I think that who has the levers of political power and state power, that's an important question. But ultimately, the political process and the political arrangements of the society are designed and instituted to def to protect and to organize the economic process. Mm -hmm. So if the capitalist class is in charge without checks and balances on them in the economy, then they'll be in charge without real checks and balances in the political process. Mm -hmm. So what puts a, a limit on the power of capital is the working class and the working class and their allies in motion in movements to push back the power of capital. You can't mm -hmm. push back that power on your own. No individual worker, no individual person has that uh, that capacity, that power. That's why we have unions. That's why we have collective uh, uh, political organizations to move the political process towards the interests of working people. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the political process is really two has two pieces if you want like walking on two legs one is the the electoral process and the other is the movement the social movement process mm. <clears throat> so if you look uh at the major changes in american social life like the new deal or like the civil rights movement uh of the 1950s and 60s or the women's movement of the 60s and 70s, those political changes and economic changes that happened as a result of those came from mass movements uh, that challenged the power of the mm. elites and of capital. And so mm. that relationship of mass movements that can shake the powers that be for power will influence their political calculus and that relationship between the political calculus in the electoral sense and the movement powers that we need to build on the other side of that inside-outside relationship of politics and uh, movements, that's what I think we need to really focus on and, and pay mm -hmm. close attention to how we're building both pieces of that. I see. The... Uh when we talk about uprisings, I, I just automatically think of the uprisings we see all around us uh, here in the Hudson Valley. We've had more than 500 people march in Kingston, uh, New York, for example, or Poughkeepsie. Uh, these small, uh, I guess they're cities, small cities, but just amazing number of people. And it's really against U.S. foreign policy uh uh, in Israel, Palestine, uh, they're marching against uh, uh, what they uh, probably correctly term is uh, genocide. Do you think this is the type of change? Could something like that uh, morph into uh, a real attack on the, the U.S. empire or the, uh, militarism that the, the U.S. has uh, pushed around other countries uh, in the world? 
Certainly there is a history of American militant resistance to American military operations overseas. We saw it in the Vietnam era. We saw it in the uh, Iraq war. We saw it around Afghanistan. We even saw it going back into the 1950s uh, around Korea, where there was real opposition to American uh, military operations around the world all across that whole period. And I think that those are very powerful moments Mm. of people questioning what is it that the U.S. really stands for. And when we see what's going on in Gaza and we see what's going on uh, in the destruction of a whole people and Mm. their ability to live in a territory that they're supposed to have for their own, I think we, you know, it does call into question what is American foreign policy. Now, that Mm. doesn't say that Hamas is the great savior or that Hamas Mm. uh, wasn't doing atrocious things on October 7th. They were. That was a war crime that needs to be condemned, that needs not to be raised up as an exemplar of uh, decent human behavior or political struggle. But Mm. what Israel is doing, you know, is, is also a violation of international law. It's a violation of the rules of war. And uh, completely disproportionate to what was uh, the attack uh, on October 7th. And I think when we look and see that the United States is defending that and protecting that uh, assault on the the Gazan people, the people of Gaza, I think people get in the street and say, no, we don't want to do that. Mm. Well, we do have a party, the DSA that is very involved in these marches, the Democratic Socialists of America. And they have some people in uh, you know, state governments that I'm just amazed uh, how radical they sound. I mean, to me, it makes perfect sense uh, to challenge U.S. militarism and uh, to make the links between militarism and the lack of health care, of uh, education, uh, so I guess this brings up a question. How are they linked? Do you think militarism is the reason we don't have universal health care or free education? Well, there's two ways, uh, two pieces of that. One piece is the money. If you, you know, the United States military budget this year for this coming year is $880 billion. That's 53% of all the money that the federal government spends on anything that they have discretion over from year to year, and not counting mm. Social Security and other things. Uh, but if you look at the so-called discretionary budget, the military is f- more than half of it. And that means when you talk about what goes to healthcare, what goes to education, what goes to diplomacy, what goes to transportation, it is shrinks into minuscule relationship to what the military gets. So that's mm. one piece. But then there's another piece, which is that that military is promoting and defending the global interests of capitalism and capital. And Mm -hmm. the people who are being protected and whose interests are being protected by that military are the very people who do not want health care for everybody in this country. They do not want to have decent education for working class people. They don't need working class people to have a broad social education. All they have to have is how do you read, how do you write, 
and how do you do simple arithmetic mm. and mm. Uh, that's enough for a, for a labor force. So it isn't just a question of money. It's a question of who does this military defend and what do those people who are defended by it want for the American people, which is nothing mm. very good. Mm. Uh, switching to another country that really has been involved in I guess choosing between capitalism and other forms of government. Uh, South Africa, you know, went through this uh, amazing uh, period where apartheid was overcome. And uh, but looking back uh, decades later, uh, blacks are still completely impoverished. Whites dominate all the financial interests in South Africa. And people are wondering what happened, you know, to the uh, overcoming of apartheid. What did happen in South Africa, and why didn't they progress any further in uh, in equality? In 2002, I was teaching at Stony Brook at the State University of New York, and I had developed the Center for Study of Working Class Life. And we had a conference in 2002 called How Class Works. It was the first of a series of eight that we did every other year. And the keynote speaker at that conference was a man named Zuelan Zima Vavi. He was at the time the uh, general secretary of the conference of African uh, South African Trade Union, uh, COSATU. Now, Vavi came and he explained exactly this point that you're raising. He pointed out to us in that conference that the end of apartheid was a negotiation. It was not a revolution. That what uh, F.W. de Klerk and uh, Nelson Mandela came to an agreement about was that politically black people could be integrated into the society as a, as a whole. But economically, the white ruling class would maintain its position of authority in the economy. But black hmm. people could vote and black people could work and black people could have political equality now with whites. And in fact, they did elect Nelson Mandela. And now sure. we have other black leaders in the in the government. It's an overwhelmingly... African population that runs the country, but the economy is still in the hands of white capitalists. And it doesn't matter if they're white or black, because uh, Ramaphosa, Cyril Ramaphosa, who's now the president of South Africa, was a militant trade unionist in the African National Congress in uh, challenging apartheid. He was one of the le union leaders that was most influential in the African National Congress. But after Mandela came into power, Ramaphosa rose not only in the political circles, but he also became a very, very wealthy corporate director. And, mm -hmm. and he was one of the few uh, African uh, people who were drawn into the ruling elite of the economy, not just the politics. Mm -hmm. And so 
what what you've just described is a situation in which black people are brought into the political process but excluded still from positions of political of economic power except for a handful of people right. and that's so capitalism persisted in South Africa and that's the reason why the overwhelmingly black working class in South Africa is getting nothing because yeah. it's capitalism and it doesn't mm. matter if the president is black or white as long as it's capitalist, that's what you're going to get for the working class, and that's what yeah. you just described. Yeah, the dominance of capitalism uh, is colorblind in a way, right? Uh, well, yes, it is. Well, we yeah. have to be a little careful of that because in this country, in the United States, the dominance of capital is not colorblind. It really wants to suppress black people because if you mm. look at the history of people uh, uh, in this country, everybody knows it was slavery. I mean, even in Florida, they know that it was slavery. But what is often overlooked is that it was racial slavery. It wasn't just everybody who was working were slaves. It was a very specific attempt to, and a policy, to separate out a section of the working population, which were African descent, and make them into chattel property. Sure. English-oriented or European origin uh, workers were spared that. Yeah. But that division is what weakened both the black and the white yeah. uh, working population because they lost each other as allies. They became, mm. a, they they were pitted against each other. Sure. And so there and even, is where that weakness arises. So yeah. in the United States, I uh, you know, the, it's not a colorblind capitalism, although it's true that if it's capitalism, it doesn't matter if you're white or black. If you're a worker, right. you get you, right. you get pushed down. And it doesn't matter if you're white or black. If you're a capitalist, you're doing, uh, you're, you, you have some power. But even mm. within those classes, there still remains racial oppression because yeah. black capitalists and the black uh, elements of the ruling class are quite small and quite limited in their capacity in relation mm. to the uh, power of the uh, dominant white uh, capitalist uh, yeah. elements in the country. I guess I was referring to Obama. Uh, he did, his campaign was based on change, wasn't it? Uh, um, human rights, uh, mm -hmm. free everybody in Guantanamo, uh, labor unions, and, and yet he's the ultimate example, I think, of the fact that, you know, if you were, are in that capitalist class, it, it doesn't really matter, you know, what color you are, uh, as long as you've accepted, uh, you know, the uh, predominance of capitalism in a way. But uh, mm -hmm. which, of course, I, Obama certainly did. Uh, totally. But don't let's completely. not forget that he got that Obama did get with the Democratic Congress and with Nancy Pelosi. Uh, so-called Obamacare, which is insuring tens of millions of Americans yeah, that they didn't have before that. It's so, not nothing. Know. I mean, he started with uh, completely disavowing any uh, public health care and then, you know, went, as you point out in the book, they went to the insurance companies and, and other parts of the capitalist uh, world and uh, struck a deal, which which has helped people, you know. Not yes. as good as as it could have been. Uh, I uh, you refer also to Frederick Douglass, uh, 
And uh, I was interested in that part uh, when Frederick Douglass says that real reform requires real disruption, um, sort of a wrench in the machine of oppression. Of course, I think of Mario Savio's famous speech, which I play on activist radio all the time. <laughs> you put your body against the machine, right? Um, what does real disruption mean in the U.S.? I think we saw it in the auto worker strike, uh, which uh, shut down selective plants in all three major uh, U.S. auto companies simultaneously around the country. That was disruptive. Mm. Uh, I think we saw it in uh, the uh, Teamsters when they went up against the UPS. Now, they didn't have a strike, but they had practice picket lines all over the country that really presented a real prospect of disruption to UPS, and they got progress. They got settlement there. That was a real advance for the workforce at UPS. Mm. Mm. So I think that uh, you have to you have to have a situation in which the people who run the show can't run it anymore without mm. taking into account what your needs are. Mm. And that often requires uh, disruption, stopping the machinery of, uh, you know, like a strike. And I think that uh, that is what we're seeing increasingly in the labor movement and then more broadly in the social movements with demonstrations and rallies that can be quite disruptive, that mm. shut down traffic, that shut down the operation sure. of uh, government agencies when you take over their building and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, now, I will say, because you were talking before about uh, DSA and the, their activity and disruption around the, around the country and in the Hudson Valley, this book is uh, Class, Race, and Gender Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. That book from PM Press that I just have put out is for DSA activists and organizers. It's for labor oh, really? organizers. It's for young huh. people and uh, more experienced people who are engaged in these social movements and are looking for something that will help explain how the mm. society works that they are challenging because, mm. you know, people get thrown into motion when they get disgusted by what the conditions are. Sure. And they don't want to take right. it anymore. They just can't stand it. And they're just going to go out in the street and say, this is no good. Yeah. But how does the, this that's no good actually work? What is mm. it that we're dealing with? How are the things connected? Like you asked, and we talked a minute ago about sure. the relationship between the military and medical care. Well, if we understand more deeply how these things work and where these injuries and where these divisions come from, we're better equipped to confront them. We're better equipped to know who are our friends and who are our enemies. Mm. We're better equipped to know how one social movement uh, reinforces and uh, presents better conditions for other social movements that are all lined up against the same common source of their issues, which is yeah. the operation of the capitalist system. And so that's what this book is trying to do. It's trying to be a resource for those people who are activists or who want to understand more deeply how does the society work that causes all these problems, that mm. brings us into the street, that brings us into the voting booth, that brings us into social awareness. 
that's what this book is about. Right, right. Um, you, we don't really have time to talk about uh, probably one of the most interesting uh, quotes, uh, the genocidal multi-generational dispossession uh, that this country is built on. That's really uh, a lot to think about uh, because it affects our militarism and the fact that we have, well, 800 bases around the world and we're been fighting wars uh, for the last several decades. Uh, so I thought on Martin Luther King's uh, special day, we should refer to him uh, saying the greatest purveyor of uh, violence in the world is his own country. Um, is that what you're saying uh, when you um, talk about uh, dispossession? I think what Dr. King was talking about was a very profound understanding that he came to uh, that the civil rights movement that was seeking justice and equality for African-American people in the United States had to confront what the U.S. was doing and what the American ruling mm. class was doing right. around the world. And he was talking, and this was speech was given in 1967, uh, April 4th, 1967, a speech called Beyond Vietnam, yeah. in which he made a link between militarism in in U.S. projection of power around the world and racism and poverty in the United mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. And I think that, again, drawing those links by going to the root, you know, when we talk about radical, mm -hmm. sometimes that word gets used to mean extreme. Oh, they're a radical mm -hmm. this or they're extreme that. Radical does not mean extreme. Radical means going to the root going to the base, to the core of what the issue is, mm. and understanding what is really going on at the foundation, at the core. So what Dr. King was doing in that speech was being a radical in the sense of going to the core of militarism and its relationship to racism and poverty mm. and degradation in the United States. And that set of relationships is what my book is trying to understand, also right. extended to issues of the environment and issues of uh, gender uh, and uh, so on. So that is, again, what this book, Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and uh, Divisions of Capitalism, is designed to do, is to make those links. Um, Michael Swag, I want to thank you for being on Activist Radio and for writing that book, which really, um, it's hard to put down once you're into it, uh, because you take us all over and, uh, you know, show us uh, things that we've uh, thought about, uh, but not really uh, enough, right? I think the... Well, thank you. And, yeah, no, uh, enjoyable read as well. Uh, and it's, makes only you angry. it's only 225 <laughs> pages, you know, it's not a doorstopper. <laughs> No, it's not. All right. Thanks so much for being on, Michael. I well, thank you it. for having me. I appreciate your uh, questions and your conversation. Uh, good, Great. good luck to the reader, to to the readers, and to our audience. Thank you very much. Yeah. Good. Bye now. Bye.
Activist Radio can be heard Thursdays 5 to 6 p.m. on WVKR 91.3 FM at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Sundays 4 to 5 p.m. on WIOF 104.1 FM in Woodstock, New York. And Sundays 5 to 6 p.m. from the Progressive Radio Network PRN.FM. Past shows can be heard on ClassWars.org. Please like our Facebook page, read our Class Wars blog for commentary on today's interview. We'll be here next week at the same time to help you become part of the resistance.